Welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. I'm Pete Clark, your host, The Whispers Guy. It appears that work expands to the time that we give it, and I started to explore how I was investing my time and effort, particularly on Fridays. It's evolved to an explanation and experiment with time, energy, attention and identity, and a mindset shift from I have to to I choose to. So if you're interested in exploring some changes to the way that you invest your time and your energy, if you'd like some tips on the way as you make some changes perhaps to your identity, if you would like the freedom of I choose to, away from I have to, then this is the podcast for you. So welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of Freedom Fridays. and. I've got a really special guest, uh, not because we have the same name, but because this chap and I uh, grew to like and, and maybe even, uh, I'm going to say, love each other because of our connection to so many things. And this is a, one of my best um, buddies in the world, not because of what we do, but what we stand for. And so, Clark Perry, welcome to the conversation. G'day, mate. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good, thanks, sir. Now, for those that are listening, Clark and I worked together for a long time. Uh, Clark now lives in the US, and Clark's background is fascinating. And so maybe just to introduce, because here's there's a reason I want to talk to you about something. Can you just give us 30 seconds on your background, Clark? Sure. So I got this really weird accent of where I'm actually an Australian-American, born and raised here in the US, did all my my undergraduate and graduate work here, and then moved to Australia back in 1990 with my wife um, for six months. And we stayed for 22 years, had two wonderful boys, took out Australian citizenship. Um, I was the head psychologist for the Australian Olympic team, went to four Olympics, 92 Olympics in Barcelona to 2004 in Athens, and concurrently uh, always worked in organizational high performance. Um, Started my own business, sold that business to a company called Rogen SI, which is where I had the pleasure of meeting Pete. We were partners at Rogen SI, um, sold that business. Um, my boys decided to come to uni here in the US and uh, we followed them and here we are. Now I work for a company called Alex Partners where I'm a director there and still doing the same work as I've been doing for you know better part of 20, 30 years. Thanks, Mike. Now, what I'd love to chat to you about because the concept of Freedom Friday is about making a change. And as I've observed and spoken and written and read about people that make changes, there seems to be some sort of either forced or unconscious identity shift. And so can you just talk to me a little bit about the shifts that you've seen? What's the big change that you see in people when they make a shift? Yeah, um, I'll speak a little bit about mine as well, but I think the big thing is when your paradigm, your view of the world, all of a sudden is not the view of the world. It's no, it's no longer um, what is accepted internally by um, what you always thought to be true. So when your truth gets challenged, all of a sudden you start to reframe, okay, well, what is truth? And, um, and I think for, you know, for most people, that idea of dissonance, we're not really happy with dissonance. We, we don't like to be disturbed. You know, we, we like to, and this is, you know, as a psychologist, one of the things that, um, that I always found interesting as a therapist was um, when, you know, someone comes to see you because they want to stop smoking. 
and the idea, well, just stop smoking. Like, <laughs> give me give me a hundred dollars, and I'll tell you stop smoking. That's that's it. Um, but the reality is, it's like if I if my truth is I'm a cigarette smoker, and that's who I am. It's really hard for me to stop smoking cigarettes because that's who I am. Like if I see myself as an overweight person, it's really hard for me to lose weight because I'm an overweight person. And so challenging those paradigms are often the things I think that get people into a different space when they start to realize that that's not the truth. You know, the truth is something else. And then I can change. So I'm just going to say, so for me, and um, part of this is how I got involved in the field that I did in high performance is uh, I grew up as an athlete. I grew up admiring athletes, you know, American athletes and, you know, and seeing them as being something extraordinary, special people, elite, you know, the whole definition of elite and yeah. seeing them as something other than than me, other than, you know, people that I knew. These these aren't people that are, they're, they're, they're the gods they are up on Mount Olympus. These these aren't the people that I see every day until you get around them and you realize, wow, they're ordinary people. <laughs> they have the same issues that we have. Um, you know, later on, when I started working, you know, the Olympic Committee at the Institute of Sport, um, you know, they have psychiatric disorders. We had athletes that had schizophrenia. We had athletes attempt suicide. So, you know, the kinds of things that you see in the real world, our elite athletes suffer from the same things. So to your point, I love the topic, which is, um, you know, Ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And sometimes they're in the public spotlight. Sometimes they're working in a charity somewhere that nobody even knows about. And so, so that's that, that working in the spotlight, what, what does that change things for people? You know, as you said, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, the people that you've been exposed to. And the people that we see on the TV, you know, right now with the Paralympics going on, they are doing extraordinary things in the minds of most people. Yep. But what I've just heard you say, they're, they're, they're normal people in the sad, they have the same hang-ups and stuff yeah. that they're carrying that, that we all do. Yeah. What, yeah. what difference does it make that they're in the spotlight? Yeah, that's a great question, Pete. I, 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 think, I think it makes a, a couple of different things. One is it makes a difference for people that watch it because we see that as extraordinary without really having a complete picture of everything that goes behind the scenes or goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. Social media is opening up a lot more these days. You know, we saw some of the things, you know, at the Olympics. Um, uh, I don't know if the Simone Biles things made it made it over there. I've um, got to chat to you about that. Yeah. Yeah. There's some interesting. Yeah. I have an interesting take on that, too. Um, you know, but Osaka, I mean, it, it, with, with social media now, there's a lot more publicity around people struggling. Um, and so I think you know that's from the external, but from the internal side, being in the spotlight like that, um, it can take on a lot more pressure. I mean, I, I worked with Remain Nameless, a couple of swimmers in particular, um, back in the early 90s, who um, were great athletes until they became famous. And once they became huh. famous, it was this obligation that they had to be great for everybody. I got to be great for my family. I got to be great for my sponsors. I got to be great for the media. You know, the greatness that I had when no one knew who I was, all of a sudden there's this public profile. So the pressure that goes with having to try to please everyone um, can be really difficult and can exacerbate any of the anxieties or, you know, the emotional issues that you may already have. And so that is, fa I find that fascinating that at some point it switches. It switches from I'm being great for the benefit of me or the sport or just because I've, I've grown up loving it. Now I'm doing it for others, but in a different way. Yeah. Is that is that triggered at different points for different athletes that you've experienced? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, some don't buy into that. Some, uh, I've heard athletes say, look, I'm not a role model. 
don't ask me to be a role model. I'm just an athlete. Um, so for some people, I don't think they ever actually feel that sense of pressure because they've always done it for themselves. Ian Thorpe was an athlete I spent a lot of time with, you know, in the early days. Ian was always that athlete. Ian, Ian never really changed from the time he was 16 years old until he was 27, 28 years old. Um, so, so certain athletes can sort of reject that. I need to do it for others. I, I know, you know, other athletes that um, as soon as they won their first medal, um, it was all downhill after that. You know, they found it really wow. difficult to be to be able to perform at the level that they had before. So wow. their personal best happened when they were 18, 19 years old. They competed for another 10 years and never got close to that personal best. Um, so, yeah, so it's a long continuum. It's along that spectrum. And, um, you know, it's different for different people. And do you have any sense of the elements that make it different? Is there any psychological yeah. makeup that someone would, like a therapy, reject it? Yeah. Whereas others would pick it up and go downhill from the personal best. Yeah. 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 Again, great question, Pete. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about Ian for a second um, because, you know, this is a real story about Ian. Um, and you may or may not remember going back to, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, Sydney Olympics and things when Ian was really thrust upon the scene and, um, you know, won, won an Olympic gold medal, broke the world record. And of course, you know, they stick the microphone in his mouth and into his face and, and ask him, so, you know, now what, you know, your Olympic gold medalist, your world record holder, what do you do now? And, and Ian gave him a confused look and basically said, uh, I really don't understand the question. I just go faster. <laughs> so, so, you know, genuinely for him, his quest was always to see how fast can I go? It's not about winning. It's not about beating the person in the lane next to me. It's about how fast can I go? And if my body allows me to go faster than anybody else, I guess that makes me an Olympic champion. That makes me a world record holder. Like, so, so for him, his focus had always been on Ian Thorpe and how good Ian Thorpe could be. So every day he went to training, every day he competed. It was about, can I do it better than the last time? That makes it a lot easier because you're totally in control okay. of that. Right. I'm not in control of whether I win or not, but I'm in control of how fast I swim. If we're talking about a sport like swimming. Yeah. Um, so, so that, that, that is one thing. The second thing I would say, and this is also the case for Ian, but for a lot of other athletes, um, when you have that social support, when you have people that, you know, no matter what I do, I'm still going to be loved. I know that, you know, when I go home at the end of the day, I could have had a, and this, doesn't have to be sport. This could be, you know, the CEO of an organization or, you know, anybody that works in a company that, you know, when I go home at the end of the day, um, my family doesn't change their opinion of me based on what I just did today. Right. Um, that, that, that love, that support is always going to be there. And so I, you find that with athletes as well, as long as they have a strong support structure beneath them, um, it's a lot easier to take chances because in their eyes, I can't fail. And that's always the thing is, you know, you well know, Pete, is fear of failure is the thing that undermines most of, you know, yeah. people's success in, in whatever endeavor they're in. The, the, being afraid to fail is often the limiting factor of success. Oh God, there's, so, there's so many strands there that I want to pick up on. I, I, I'm going to pick up on this one first. Do you think, therefore, then someone like an Ian Thorpe or others that we see in the public domain, they have different identities? a pool-based identity, an Olympic-based identity, a hometown-based identity. Do you think that's, is that what they have? And is and psychologically, how feasible is that? That's, oh, mate, that's such a good question. So um, we had, we had, a, we had a, a great swim coach, and some on the line may have heard of him before, Gennady Tureski. Gennady Tureski, Russian coach, came and coached um, Michael Klim, Ian Thorpe, 
um, for a while. Um, Coach Alex Popoff, who was, you know, Russian swimmer that swam with us here in Australia, but he had a whole, you know, Sarah Ryan, he had a whole group of swimmers that he worked with. And Gennady was, of all the coaches I've ever worked with, you know, outside of Don Talbot, who I, I love and adore, um, was one that was the whole picture. Like he was able to think about the psychological impact of swimming, not just the biomechanics of swimming. He had the whole picture. And, and, and I, but being a Russian um, that spoke very little English, his stories that he would tell often didn't land well. They, yeah. they, they, the translation wasn't always right. Like he would tell a joke and it would just fall flat and he would be hysterically laughing and no one else would get it. Well, he had one. So this was at the Institute of Sport. And, and this gets to the point where you're just asking about people is um, Alex Popoff was, again, arguably one of the greatest swimmers in history, um, 100 meter, 50 meter freestyler. And, and Alex was the kind of swimmer that um, if you put him up at the beginning of a workout set, he could swim a world record for you. Or you put him in the Olympic finals, he could swim a world. He could swim as fast as you needed him to swim whenever you needed him to swim. So we were actually, we were actually at a meet in Melbourne. And, um, and Gennady stood up in front of all the Australian Institute of Sports swim team. And there was a picture on the wall that had a face looking at you and a face looking to the left and a face looking to the right. And Gennady in his Russian accent said, mm, this is an interesting picture. I think it has three faces. You have one face looking at you, one face one, one face the other. I don't think you need three faces. I think you need one face. <laughs> and everybody everybody looked at like what the hell does that mean and i just went that is brilliant because that was how he coached so to your point the way he coached and very successfully coached was you can't have different faces you can't have one face that's a swimming face and you have another face that you put somewhere else if you want consistency in competition you have to have one face you have to have one way of sort of going about doing things. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't moderate the intensity of that face, but you can't pretend to be somebody you're not. That's who you are. And so you have to bring yourself to whatever it is that you do. And I thought, and I'm glad you asked that question because I, I, that, that just stands out for me so well. Gennady, unfortunately, has, has since passed away. But that is, um, that is one way to think about, you know, if you try to be too many people for other people, you get lost in who you are. You become schizophrenic. And, you know, the more we can sort of think about who we are, what we stand for, what are our values, you know, what, what, what are the things, our principles, our guiding ways of doing things, the more we can just align around that, take that to work, take that to home, take that. It's a whole lot easier. And pardon my Russian accent. <laughs> um, that, that The whole topic fascinates me because in, in normal life for normal people, like you and I, I'd say, you know, we are, I'm a son, I'm a husband, yeah. I'm a father, I'm a mate, I'm a yeah. consultant, I'm a colleague. So that I have different roles. Yeah. But what I'm, what I'm thinking I'm hearing you say is if those roles are so disparate and so far apart, so the Pete that I show up as a consultant is just miles apart from the Pete that I show up as a father. Right. That's going to cause me some problems. Yeah. Exactly. Is, is that what is that what is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, I agree, Pete. I think I think you know once again how I show up, what I, what I hold important to me has got to be consistent. So, for an example, I can't be an extreme extrovert in one situation and 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 carry out that extroversion in a way that doesn't sap me of energy if I'm mm. an extreme introvert. 
So I can do it. I can I can play that role if I have to play that role, but I can only do that for so long and it's not really me. So again, that's that's a role I may have to play. But in the end yeah. of the day, you have to be true to who you are. And, that, it, and, and that's the challenge. It, it reminds me of the, you know, the hackneyed phrase, fake it till you make it. Yeah. Which yeah. Uh, what, what I'm hearing you say is look, that's possible, but not for long. No. Unless you do the work inside yep. and, and you settle on or you get clarity on who you yep. are, yep. which is such a big, which is such an easy, simple question, but perhaps a lifetime of answers. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, yep. Well, I know you well enough, Pete, obviously. And, and, you know, I know me well enough to know that people have said that we're really good up on stage so we can stand in front of an audience of, and have done it. As you know, both of us have done it. Thousands of people and, and, and deliver a really high impactful presentation. And they walk away thinking, wow, you're such an extrovert. <laughs> you and I are both not extroverts. We yeah. are not extroverts, yeah. but we can do that. Like yeah. if we had to do that, we, but I wouldn't do it every day, all day. I, cu- I yeah. couldn't do it every day, all day. So yeah. that's, that's that, the challenge. Yeah, that's right. But when, we, when people meet me over coffee, you know, on my own, they're quite surprised sometimes about how quiet I can be and how reflective and, and you know, boring. Because they see the <laughs> stage persona and they go, wow, what you, that, it must be exhausting to live with you. And yet, <laughs> you know, here I am in my little studio, me and yep. my books. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yep, um, so, I mean, from a, a psychological perspective, somebody making a change mm-hmm. who wants to see themselves as different, you know, going from working in corporate to an entrepreneur, um, mm-hmm. you know, th- this identity to that identity, they, they understand the concept that they need to shift. Yeah. What comes first? Oh. <sighs> So help me understand which comes first in terms of... So let, let's, let's say I'm working in corporate, a little bit yeah. like you and I have done. And yeah. I've got a, a role, I've got a salary, I've got a team, I've got yeah. clients, I've got responsibilities, yeah. and I want to become an entrepreneur. Right. Do I have to do it first and the identity catches me up? Yeah, I got you. Does it catch you. me up or do I have to shift my identity in my current role and kind of play two roles? And then that forces me to make the shift. Yeah, good question. And, and this is me not having really thought about that in the past. But if I, if I had to give an educated, semi-educated guess, <laughs> um, I, I would think it depends on my own emotional flexibility. We, right. all, we all have different levels of emotional flexibility, you know, as you well know, you know whether mm-hmm. it's you know, being involved in business or family or, or, or being around mates. Um, people are not all the same. They're not, not all carved out of the same piece of wood. So um, if I am highly flexible and adaptable, then my, my position would be, you know what? Break away, break away, give it a shot. See how you go. Yeah. Um, you know, because uh, you're going to get knocked down. And when you get knocked down, you get, are you resilient? You know, are you hardy? Can you, can you get yourself back up again? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you are, if you're that kind of person, then yeah, it makes sense to, to take the chance. There's a lot of other people that already... You know, the fixed and growth mindset, obviously, Carol Dweck yes. stuff. Yes. Um, there's a lot of people that have a fixed mindset. You know, th- this is just who I am. And, um, and I'm always going to be like this. So if you're going to ask me to go from a safe corporate structure where they know who I am, they know what I got, and now I'm going to go to another place and expose myself, uh, no, nah, I, can't, I can't do that. 
where a person that's got a growth mindset would welcome that opportunity, would challenge, they say, yeah, let me fail. I love failing because I learn so much when I fail. So, so my best educated guess would be, it probably depends more on the flexibility and the inherent qualities of that person. And again, right. whether they're growth or fixed mindset. And so that, uh, Chris, like, does that make sense for you? Cause I'm, I'm just punting. Uh, no, it does. Um, and, and I asked the question cause I continue to ponder. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the user consultant's answer, it depends. <laughs> yeah. Because often it does. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I don't see it as a black and white binary scenario. Yeah. It, it depends. You know, it yeah. depends your upbringing, your parents, your, your yeah. situation, you know. Yeah. Uh, if I think about my background, you know, my dad died when I was really young. Mm-hmm. So I was left on my own. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty comfortable being on my own, which means... You know, I'm, I don't exude warmth. I'm not the warmest person in the world because I don't, I've never needed the, the, the kind of external validation as often mm-hmm. as some others that have for other reasons. Yeah. Um, and so when I think about that, if someone's, if someone's trying to make a change and, you know, uh, there might not be any answers here, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. If they were willing to look at who they are. Mm-hmm. How would they do that? Yeah, years of therapy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, yeah. So the way the way I would always start with that is um, to take some time to be alone, to be introspective. Um, we we do here. We do a lot of, like with Alex Partners within the practice that that, that I um, that I'm part of, which is transformative leadership. We do leadership assessment. So we do companies want to hire a new CEO, new chairman of the board, and then we do a really really in depth assessment of that person, which includes things like 360 psychometrics. And part of that is what we call a behavioral event interview, which is a three hour conversation of you know. So Pete Clark, um, where were you born? Tell me a little bit about your parents. Tell me a little bit about your first friend. Who was your first friend? Do you remember their name? Um, if I was to contact Jim right now, what would Jim say about you when you were five years old? So mm-hmm. really digging into how did you become who you are today? It's amazing how often when we finish that three-hour conversation, people say, I'd never looked at my life like that before. Right. I'd never, I never took the whole, you know, for me, 65 years of my life and put it down into a three-hour block. And try to understand that. I think that's a really powerful exercise. You can even do it yourself to just sit down and say, how did I get here? Like, how, how, how did it turn out that these are my values? I could have had different values. Why, why did I pick these values? Or why did someone force these values upon me? I think that's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then after that, Pete, I, I'd be saying, you know, go talk to people that know you, that really know you, that really are around you. Um, if you remember, we worked with Ian Narev. Who was you know former CEO of CBA? And if you remember, I think you and I were both there when he, we had the conversation. We we're talking about mentorship, and he and he was saying that um, you know I have a number of mentors that I use. I have people in banking. I have people in industry. He said, but the best one that I have, the best mentor, was a girl I went to kindergarten with, huh. and and she says, Ian, I know you. Don't BS me. Like <laughs> you're not some you know big corporate magnate. You are in Rev. Yeah. And I went to kindergarten with you. So I know you. Those yeah. are the kind of people you need to talk to. You don't need to talk to people that think you're fantastic, tell you all the wonderful things about you. You need the people that are just strip you away and just yeah. say, you know, this is what I see when I'm around you. These yeah. are your assets. These are your potential liabilities. So yeah. That's what I would suggest is that if you really want to try to understand, do some soul searching and then talk to people that 
that know you, that truly know you and are prepared mm. to talk to you openly. Mm. That's that's great counsel. Of course, I know in the world that we live, there will, there'll be people that will be looking for the Snapchat version of that. <laughs> Can I do that in 30 seconds? And, and like, No, don't bother. Don't, don't even bother. Go, go and read your horoscopes or something. That'll give you as much information. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, uh, Clark, I, I really would like to touch on the, you know, the, the Olympic stuff and the Simone Biles mm. conundrum, right? Because mm. when, when it all came out, mm. my, my own personal perspective is I, I felt uncomfortable even having an opinion mm-hmm. because I've never been involved in anything at the 0.10% best in the world. So how could I possibly even know what it's like to be there? I can make a comment as a father. I can make a comment as a son because I am one, but I've never been involved in a world. I don't know what that world's like. What did strike me and I've, I've written about it was when she came out and said, I'm more than the sum of my accomplishments. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. which I thought that, that really resonated with me because I see people totally absorbed in the sum of their accomplishments and can't see beyond it. Yeah. And yeah. so you, you said you had an interesting view on the Simone Biles scenario. What, what, what is your view? So, so one is I, I think it's fantastic that she and, and Asaka have raised the idea of mental health an elite sport. I think it's, I think it's great. Like that, that should have always been part of the conversation. So I think it's wonderful that it's wonderful that it's out there now. It's wonderful that people are talking about it. Um, having said, having said that, and, and, and I want to come back to, you know, Simone Biles as well about the other side of this. Um, when I look at what she was going through from the outside and having worked with athletes that have gone through this as well, I think we have to be really careful about calling performance anxiety, mental health. Because okay. I, I think I think it's I think it's great that we're talking about mental health, but we're not talking about schizophrenia. We're not talking about clinical depression. We're not talking about suicide. We're talking about someone that, in the normal day to day life, functions well. Apparently, by her own admission, she functions well on the day to day. You put her in a high performance environment, that's where she struggles. So my take on that is, I think it's great that it was raised. I think we have to be careful that we don't overly generalize performance anxiety and call that mental health, because then you're just going to negate the really important mental health issues that we face in our society. Um, Where I feel bad is that, um, and I don't know people that work with Simone Biles. And again, I don't work with the U.S. Olympic team, um, but I feel bad that it appears that she was not prepared well enough for that competition. The people that yeah, the people did not do anything to say, you're now going into Olympics where you are the highly favored person. Do you realize what pressure you might feel as a result of that? It was, you were great before, you'll be great again. Get out there, girl, and go do it. And so I feel bad that the organization let her down. I don't feel I I, I, I find no fault at all for Simone Biles, but I have fault in the organization not preparing her for that moment. Yeah, and look, my limited experience, that was my kind of observation too. It felt like she was fronting up on her own. Where was her support network, her social network, her media network to kind of protect her a little bit from having to do that? I was staggered that she was doing it all on her own. Yep, agree, agree. And at least that's the way it appeared on the surface. That's the way it appeared. Yeah, you're right. You know, who knows what was going on behind the scenes? Yeah, and if it was happening behind the scenes, it wasn't effective. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, you've made a really interesting distinction between, you know, 
mental health that you've been exposed to and performance mm. anxiety. Yeah. You know, and mental health versus other anxieties that we have. And obviously we know it's a spectrum. Yep. Um, as humans, we like to shortcut. We like to conceptualize and make it e or oh, oh, it's just mental health, isn't it? And there's so much to that. Yeah. Um, do you think people on that, do you think people in your fields, you know, the field of mental health who are dealing with those more extreme cases, do you think they worry about it being, you know, kind of socialized as something everyone suffers from? So we can't make the distinction anymore. Yeah, I think it's Is a that a concern? Point. I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a great point. I think, you know, when, when we think about um, how we fund a lot of these, you know, whether disorders, like if we talk about, you know, diagnostic statistical manual for psychology, if we talk about these as disorders, um, we, we have to, we have to be, I say selective, I say this very carefully. We have to be selective in that there is only so much budget to go around and we need to be thinking about people that struggle every day with everyday life really need to be a priority for us. You know, yeah. pe people that you know can't leave the house for agoraphobia, you know, people that, you know, have, have, you know, dissociative di identity disorders, DID, um, you know, these are people that just can't function on a day-to-day -day basis. We have to be careful that we don't take, you know, people that, oh goodness, I can't, I can't win my gold medal. Therefore I have, I have a mental health issue. We need to be thinking about the spectrum, as you said, Pete, which is we have people that have real severe mental disorders, real mental health issues, and we need to do what we can to help these people as best we possibly can. While at the same time, we should have ways of helping people that are elite performers and make sure that we help them to be able to perform at their best. But it's a very, very different thing from someone that's got dissociative identity disorder or schizophrenia and someone that can't compete for a gold medal. Hmm. Oh, that, I mean, just that would be an hour's conversation, right? Just the distinction there. And, <laughs> oh, and how, be a lot of debate. Yeah, there would be. And that's, that's what fascinates me and kind of saddens me a little bit that the debate happening online isn't really a debate. Yeah. It's a projection of views and opinions and there's no dialogue. There's no, oh, I hear what you're saying in that situation. So I wonder if this is the case. And I'm curious about, there's none of that. It's just judgment after judgment after statement after more judgment, and it just separates. Yeah, agree, mate. Agree. So, Clark, I'm conscious of time. I'm so grateful for your time. Uh, I know it's a little bit late in the US. I'm going to finish as I normally do with some quick fire questions that you're you're not aware of. So, I, I've All asked right. you to just give us your first and, and best thought as we go through this, and then we'll, yep. we'll close the conversation. So, Clark with an E or Clark without an E? No E. <laughs> What's your favorite Olympic event? Swimming. Uh, what do you miss most about Australia? <sighs> Pete Clark. Um, <laughs> friends. Everything about it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're Australian Americans, even though we were born in America. Yeah. What do you miss least about Australia? Pete Clark. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> What did I miss least? Wow. I, 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 I'm really struggling to think of something that I miss. Uh, probably family here. So when we're there, you know, the family right. that we have. Yeah. 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 Ian Thorpe or Kieran Perkins? Oh, Kieran Perkins. <laughs> and Kieran. what's a book that's changed your life? Ah. It's changed my life. 
believe it or not, I'm going to, I'm going to give a really silly answer. Not silly, I guess, maybe a simple answer, which is um, intro to psychology. <laughs> okay. Undergrad, undergraduate first exposure to psychology, the intro to psychology textbook is what set me down this path. Right. And, and I have to say, Clark, you know, beyond being a friend and a colleague and a man and whose family I love very dearly, what a wonderful path it's been for you. Yeah, I, I, it's been, it's funny, you know, without taking too much time here, um, everybody talks about how important it is to set goals. And I know how important it is to set goals. Um, I've been one of those people that just do great stuff. Or I, I think great stuff anyway, just yeah. do my best every single day and things will happen. I, ne- I never sat down and said, one day I want to be the head psychologist at the Australian Institute of Sport, or I never said I want to go to the Olympics, or I said I want to start my own company. Um, these things just sort of happen. So um, it's been well, great. Mate, it's been lovely to chat with you. And um, I know you and I over the years have connected and we have this, you know, inherent belief, this, this hope that, you know, occasionally the good guys do win. And I would count you as, you know, one of the top good guys that I know. So thank you so much for the insights. Thank you so much for the conversation uh, and love to thank the family. You. Thanks. Love you, mate. See ya. Cheers. Bye.